David wrote psalms that, you know, have a lot of different moods and tones attached to them. Some of them are very joyful songs. Some of them are less than joyful at the beginning, but then become joyful at the end. And some of them are despairing all the way through. You know, from beginning to end, it's despair. Some of the psalms that he wrote begin like this. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's how he prayed to the Lord. God, I feel that you're hiding from me. I feel that you're standing far away. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord? Have you ever said that to the Lord? How long? You know, how long? He says, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then Psalm 22, verse 1. This is a very famous psalm because Jesus quoted this on the cross to his father. But David wrote this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now those are very human emotions. Those are very human prayers. I think each one of them, in a sense was inaccurate. God had not hidden himself from David. God had not forgotten David, and God had not forsaken David. But at the time that he wrote those things, that's exactly how he felt. Amen? And have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever thought that way? Maybe you haven't actually uttered a prayer to God like that. Maybe you're too obedient as a Christian for that, and you know, like, that's out. I shouldn't do that. That's, those, are, those are outside of the rules. But maybe you felt that way. You know, Lord, do you see me? Lord, do you watch me? I, I, I love David for this reason. I, I love that real spirit before the Lord. Uh, he is not the kind of guy that is going to, when he doesn't before God feel joyful, act as if he is. No, he's very real before the Lord. He says, God, this is what I'm battling. This is what I'm going through. And something happened to David in this story in between chapter 26 and 27. Something occurred where a doubt began to enter into his mind. We left him at the end of chapter 26 very brazen, very bold, very confident in what God was going to do in his life. God's going to deliver me. God's going to stand for me. Saul, you're not going to be my friend, but I am trusting that God is going to treat me just as I have treated you and even better. My hand, my life is in the hands of the Lord. He had that confidence, but like you, and like me, that confidence, it went up and it went down. And in the story before us, the confidence of David went down and he began to listen to the discouragement and the doubt and the fear that he felt that was very real to him. And he began to make decisions based on that discouragement, decisions based on that doubt, decisions based upon that fear. And those decisions had long-term ramifications that were hard and painful for his life and the people that were in his life. And the reason I am so thankful for this passage is because I have seen so many times people feel discouraged feel doubts about God's plan for their lives and feel fear about what is happening in their world and begin to make decisions and build their lives based upon that discouragement, doubt, and fear. And the decisions that are made are the things that are, can be catastrophic. It's not the fact that you feel those things. It's the decisions that are made based off of those things that can so often harm your life. 
And so I want to show you what happens to David in this passage because he went there. It's not the, the problem is not that he felt this way. The problem is that he began to make decisions based upon those feelings and those doubts and that discouragement. So let's read what happens first in verse 1. It says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So something here happens to David. He begins to say in his heart that one day I'm going to die because of Saul. Now, like I said, last week he's very bold. Last week he's very confident. I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. Saul cannot take my life. God is going to defend me. Saul is either going to die in battle, or the Lord's going to strike him, or he's going to die of old age, but I am going to live. I will be on the throne. I am going to survive. But here he begins to tell himself, no, one day I'm going to die at the hand of Saul. And he begins to also say, look, there's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. The Philistines, by the way, were the very people that David had been battling for over a decade. He had killed Goliath, their great hero, and he somehow begins to convince himself, you know where I should go live? I should go live with the Philistine people. And he also began to say to himself, I must escape myself out of Saul's hand. Where did all of this come from? Notice the beginning of verse 1. It says, then David said in his heart. At this point in David's life, he is not speaking with God. At this point in David's life, he is not hearing the word of God. At this point in David's life, his heart has become the messenger that he listens to and that he submits to. You see, this is one of the first things that happens when you enter into discouragement and doubt and fear and begin to allow it to overtake your heart. Number one, your heart overtakes God's Word. Or if I could say it like this, your heart overtakes the Bible. Or I could even say it like this, your heart becomes the new Bible. And you begin to to think that your heart and the feelings of your heart, the thought of your heart are more accurate than the Word of God itself. David is not here praying to God, but he's speaking with his own heart. He's not consulting the Word of God, but believing lies that his heart has developed. He had doubts about God's promises and fears about Saul and discouragement because of the situation that he was in. And we can so often do this very same thing. We'll read in the Word of God that God has called us. That from before the foundation of the earth, He has named us and chosen us. And and so we'll see that within God's Word. He's called me. He loves me. He's selected me. But then, as life goes on, and as the doubts and discouragements and frustrations of life enter in, we can begin to say, no, God does not know me. God has not chosen me. God has not selected me. We can hear the message that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, but then we begin to argue, no, I don't think that God loves me. I don't think that God has chosen me. 
We might read in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he has foreordained for us to walk in, that we are his workmanship, that he has made us for something very specific, that he has a plan designed for our lives. But as discouragement and doubt comes in, we can begin to feel as if God has no plan, has no purpose for our lives. And David, like so many of us, came to a place where he began to believe his heart more than he believed the promise of God, the word of God. Listen, this is something that we really need to be careful about because I believe that many modern believers just in their everyday flow of life listen to their own heart much more than the word of God. And so if that is the general state of things, then we must really be careful when discouragement comes into our life. Perhaps you've heard the famous verse from Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says this, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now let me ask you, do you think it's good to trust something that is deceitful above all things? Would you like someone, if someone came into your life right now and said, hey, I I would like to begin making decisions for your life. I would like to lead your life. I would like to help you figure out whether you should go right or left or say yes or no or do this or that. I'd really like to help you that. But there's one thing that you need to know about me. I am deceitful above all things. (laughs) I mean, if anything, what you'd begin to say is, okay, well, whatever you say, I'll just do the opposite right? So now, now I, I believe personally that Jeremiah 17 verse 9, that confession from the prophet, from God to the people of Israel, I do believe that it has been overemphasized at times in the body of Christ. Because though it is true that the heart is deceitful above all things, or in a New Testament concept, Romans 3 verse 10, though we are all before we are in Christ under sin, the depravity of humanity, the other truth or the other side of that coin is that we are created in the image of God. So there will be times where we have a desire that God would have because we are made in his image. But then when we come to Christ, we receive a new nature. We're regenerated. But still, even with a regenerated nature, with a new nature within us, we still have a battle with that old man and with that old old heart from time to time. And so, we must be on guard against being led by our hearts as David was in this moment. You know, what we really need is we need our minds, our hearts, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how does that transformation occur? It occurs with the Word of God. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. In talking about the sacred writings, that's how Paul referred to the Bible in that passage to Timothy, he said, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I know how we usually think of salvation. We think of salvation as being the thing that had a specific date in our lives. You know, when did you get saved might be the question. And you might be able to say, well, you know, August 1st, 1999. That was the day that I gave my life to Christ. I trusted in his message of the gospel and I became a Christian. I leaned upon him for the saving of my soul. And that's usually how we think about salvation. 
But what is Paul, the apostle, doing in his second letter to Pastor Timothy, telling him that the sacred writings, the Scripture, can make him wise for salvation? You see, by that time, Timothy had been saved for many years. Not only had he been saved for many years, but he'd been walking with God for many years. And not only had he been walking with God for many years, but he'd been serving God for many years. He'd been the pastor of the church in Ephesus for a very long time. So why did he need the sacred writings to make him wise for salvation? It's because we so often only think of salvation as a past tense experience. No, God wants to save you at a point in time, but he also wants to continue to save you all throughout this life. And then one day he will return for us where we will be ultimately saved. So the salvation that we need to experience after we get saved positionally is that we need to be saved from the perpetual pull of sin here in this life. The wrong perspectives, the doubts, the folly and the foolishness that is innate in humanity, we need salvation from that. And what Paul tells Timothy is the sacred writings, the Word of God can help give you salvation, make you wise for salvation from all of that folly, from all of that sin. You see, the first thing I want you to see here is that David, as he gave in to the doubt and the discouragement and the fear, his heart began to overtake the Word of God. But what I am pleading for you about is that the Word of God would overtake your heart. That though the temptation might be for your heart to overcome the Bible, that the Bible would overcome your heart. Listen, can I just say it like this this morning? I believe that it is good for every single believer to regularly read their Bible. I believe that. I think that that is a constant in the human life. How can we say that this is the Word of God? God's Word breathed out, recorded for us that He, over 2,000 years through 40 different authors with all these beautiful prophecies and declarations, He revealed Himself to humanity with this book and then not read it. Man, we've got to be people who read the Word of God. And I hope I don't come across like a legalistic kind of person. I just think this is the greatest love letter that's ever been written to you. Why don't you get into it? Spend some time reading the Bible. I was thinking about it as we were sitting there singing uh, this morning. I was thinking, I think I probably have right now in my life at this point, probably about a thousand hours of Bible teaching available online that I've recorded over the last 10 years of my life. That should communicate to you that I think it's the bomb. I love the Bible. I think it's beautiful. I think that we need it. I think we need to get it into our lives. So I hope that you listen to it being taught, but I hope that you also are allowing the Word of God every day into your life as you read it, as you spend time thinking about it. And as you do, slowly but surely, your mind, your heart is going to come under Scripture rather than being over Scripture where it does not belong. But David, in this episode, began to listen to his own heart more than God's Word. Let's look at the next thing that happened in verse 2. It says, So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who are with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, 
And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish, verse 6, gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Just a little note that the author gives to us. And verse 7, the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Okay, so David here, as I've been mentioning, he listens to his heart. And he runs off into Philistine territory. The whole scene is really odd. Uh, First of all, of all the Philistine places that he decides to go, he decides to go to Gath. It was a prominent Philistine city. And Gath was the place that uh, Goliath was from. And so it's a strange place for him to go. Now, some of you might be remembering that this is not the first moment that David had fled to Gath. Earlier in his life, when he first began to be persecuted by Saul, he had fled to Gath. Do you remember that episode? And there, when he went to Gath, when he arrived, word began to spread, this is David, and they called him actually the king of Israel. They they knew this guy has slain thousands of Philistines. This guy is responsible for the death of many Philistines. And when David realized that they knew who he was and how they felt about him, uh, he realized, I need to get out of Gath. He thought maybe he could kind of lay low there, but he realized, I got to get out of Gath. And so he feigned madness. You remember the story? He acted insane. And the reason he probably did that is because probably in that culture, they thought that insane people, that there was, they, they had weird superstitions about them. And so, and so he, he thought to himself, okay, uh, this is going to be their way of getting rid of me. And so they did. Achish said, man, I, this guy's got to get out of here. And so David fled. He, he saved his life. Now, now we're years later. David has won many victories over the Philistines, but he's also now for many years been on the run from Saul. So he goes back to Gath, the same place, and he goes to the same king, a guy named Achish. And Achish probably is thinking to himself, you know, I've heard about the battle between Saul and David, and maybe I can turn David to the Philistines. Maybe I can bring him over to the Philistine camp. Wouldn't that be beautiful to get a warrior like this? We could totally drive Israel out of their place and take over uh, the land for ourselves. And so David comes in. The interesting thing that he does is he asks Achish, he says, hey, I don't want to dwell in Gath. I don't want to live in the royal city with you. Just give me and my men a little village to live in. And so Achish says, fine. And he gives him a town called Ziklag. And it tells us that David and his men lived in Ziklag for a year and four months with their wives and their children. What I want you to see here is that David and his men, for the first time in a long time, Like I said, he's almost 30 years old at this point. For the first time in a long time, David and his men are at peace. It says it right there in verse 4. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Saul is not pursuing them. They finally have a village rather than a cave and a wilderness to live in. Their wives are there. Even their children are there. This is a peaceful experience for a year and four months. 
You see, the second thing that I want you to see about building your life and listening to the discouragement and the fear, the second thing that I want, to see, want you to see is that when you listen to the discouragement, when you listen to the doubts and you listen to the fear and you act out upon it, here's what you need to know. Number two, you will experience relief. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself right now, now hold on a second, Nate. I thought the whole point of this Bible study was to be that we shouldn't listen to our discouragement and that we shouldn't listen to our doubts and that we shouldn't listen to our fears. But now you're telling me that if I do, there's a good chance I'm going to experience relief. And yeah, that's exactly right. There's a good chance that if you take matters into your own hands, you will experience a bit of relief. There's a good chance that if you are under marital strain in your life and you decide to begin flirting with someone else, it's not your spouse, and you begin to enter into a relationship with them, there's a chance that for a moment you'll feel some excitement, you'll feel some relief. There's a chance that if you're in the midst of your studies right now and you're working so hard to get that degree and you realize, man, this is so painful. Going to school, studying, finals, writing, all that kind of stuff. I can't handle it. There's a good chance that if you drop out in the midst of that, you will experience a season of relief. There's a good chance that if you're in the midst of a job or career that is difficult and hard and you quit today, you will experience a season of relief. But it will only be, more than likely, a season of your life. David was inviting pain into his life down the road by allowing this peace into his life for this short little season of his life. You see, the Bible says that there is a thing called the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. What that means is that sin is acknowledged in the Bible to be something that is enjoyable, something that is fun, something that is pleasurable, but only for a season. Over the long haul, it's something that hurts and harms and kills your spiritual life and so much more. You see, even Jonah, when he went down into the boat, what did he do there in the boat when he was running from the will of God? Well, the Bible says that Jonah fell asleep. He took a nap. He was peaceful. You see, I worry a little bit about believers who say things like this. I just had no peace about it. Look, there are times where you shouldn't have a peace about it. There are times where the Lord is asking you to do something hard or difficult to be obedient to Him, and you might not really feel a whole lot of peace about that thing because the reality is it can be hard to take up your cross and to deny yourself and to follow after Him. If for you what it means to have peace about it means that it's easier to be disobedient than obedient to God, then I don't want you to have any peace about that. But Jonah had it, others had it, and David, for a moment, had a little bit of peace as a result of this decision. Now let's see what happens next. I'm going to give you a little warning before I read these next verses. All through the rest of this chapter and on into the next, there is some wild stuff that we're going to read about. There's actually just a whole lot of ugly, both from David and from Saul, that we are going to come face to face with. So let's read in verse 8, of some of the darkness that David got himself into. It says, Now David, verse 8, and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. 
For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or the arid uh, desert area around Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David, verse 11, would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell us, tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to, the, to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. Now let me explain to you for a moment what just happened in that paragraph. David, from his town in Ziklag, uh, needs to provide for himself, provide for the 600 soldiers and their families. And so what he does is he goes on these raids to neighboring towns. The Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites were the people that he would target. He would decimate them. It was a slaughter. This is what is ugly in this passage. He'd take their livestock, their clothing, all of that. He'd leave no eyewitnesses, and then he would return to Ziklag. He'd bring some of the gifts to Achish, and Achish, the Philistine king, he would ask David, hey, where'd you go? Where'd you get all this stuff? And instead of telling the truth about who he'd gone to attack. David lied to Achish and told him, I went into Israel. I defeated the people of Judah or the Jeremielites or the Kenites. These were people in Israel. And so when Achish heard that, he thought to himself, wow, David has really turned to the dark side. Uh, he has come over to us as the Philistines so much so that no longer is he fighting against Philistines, he's actually fighting against the people of Israel. That's what Achish thought, but it's not yet what David had done. And so Achish began to tell himself, David is firmly now fixed on our team. Now, like I said, this is a terrible moment in David's life. I will admit that there are some people who think that David was justified in taking the lives of the people in these specific towns. And the reason that some people think that is because, notice in verse 8, the little phrase, these were the inhabitants of the land from of old. You see, when the people of Israel went into the promised land, God had marked out certain people groups for destruction. These were people groups who had heard about all God had done for Israel in Egypt, had heard that God wanted to give the promised land to the people of Israel and still had rejected the God who had defeated the Egyptians even though they'd heard of that great victory. These were people who had persecuted the people of Israel in the past and God had marked them out for judgment. And I realize that that can be an uncomfortable concept for many of us because for some reason we seem to be more comfortable with God judging human beings after death rather than judging human beings before death. But God in His foresight and foreknowledge 
seems to be well equipped in my mind to be able to give that kind of judgment. And the people of Israel, remember, were the delivery mechanism of God to bring the Messiah Christ who could save every tribe and nation and tongue from their sin eternally. And these people groups were against the people of Israel and trying to eliminate them, thus eliminating the potential future Messiah. So the eternal life of every person in this room, in a sense, was in the balance in the ancient struggle between Israel and these people groups. Still, as I look at the story, I don't think that David, it just doesn't strike me, that David in this point was thinking to himself, I'm going to finish what the generation of Joshua and the people around him did not finish. I'm going to finish what Saul himself in his battle against the Amalekites did not finish. I don't think that David in this moment was seeing himself as an instrument in the hand of the Almighty God to judge a, a people that God had determined were under judgment. To me, it just seems like he needed some food, he needed some clothing, he needed some stuff, and he acquired it in a very brutal kind of way. And as I look at this, I see David behaving in a way that is very un-David-like. He went and did something that was very dark. And when I point all of that out, I just want to say it this way. When we build our lives on discouragement, we begin to listen to the discouragement. We begin to listen to the doubts. We begin to listen to the fear. We begin to act and do and be things that we normally wouldn't act or do or be. That discouragement gets into our hearts and we begin to do and say and be things that are just not us. I remember talking to a friend of mine years ago from out of this area and he was sharing with me because he'd gone through a little bit of struggle to be faithful in his marriage and and he'd fought for it. He'd come back and, and started walking with the Lord and he, he, he caught things before it got to a real ugly point. But what he shared with me is, is he said, you know, it had nothing to do with this wandering eye or anything like that. What happened was I was getting so discouraged in my job. Day after day, I'd go to work and I just hated it. And it, just grind, it was just grinding on me so much. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, these temptations began to come into my life that I felt susceptible to. And so I had to run to some friends. I had to run to some brothers in Christ and just confess to them, man, I'm beginning to wander mentally and emotionally. But he tied it back to that beginning thing. I'm just discouraged with where my life is at. I'm just discouraged with what I'm doing. I'm just discouraged with this job and career that I've been put in. You see, the enemy, if he can't just outright get us, he loves to discourage us so that he can get us where he wants us to go. I love that old story about the devil's workshop where somebody was given a tour of his workshop and saw all of these instruments and one of them was just beat up and used and abused and obviously a real favorite in the devil's workshop. And if you're sitting here today going like, the devil has a workshop? No, he doesn't. It's just an allegory. But uh, as, as the person was given the tour, the guide said, what tool do you think that is? Well, that must be lust. No, it's not lust. Well, that must be greed. No, it's not greed. Oh, that must be pride. No, it's not pride. Well, what is it? It's discouragement. 
Because as he uses that on an individual, he can so often get them to the lust or the greed or the pride. And so we have to be careful because it will turn us to do things we normally would not do. Now look with me at the first couple of verses of chapter 28. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, what's happening here is that the future king in Israel of Israel is being invited by the Philistine lords to gather together with them to go fight in battle against the Israelites. So the future king of Israel is about to go war against Israel. The reader of the passage is supposed to go, what? You know, it's like, it's like this moment of just like, that cannot be, you know, kind of thing. So I'm trying to explain that to you because you guys didn't react like that when we read it. All right, so... So David here, he comes to a point of decision. You see, that's what happens. When you begin to let compromise into your life, the moment comes where you're going to have to pay the piper. You're going to have to make a terrible decision. You're going to be confronted with something that is just absolutely horrible. And that was what David had been brought to. He was forced into a terrible choice at this moment. This is the reason why we need to, dis- to decide in advance that we're going to walk with the Lord no matter what. Because if you decide from moment to moment, if you wait for the temptation to come, ah, am I going to walk with the Lord right now or not? Man, it's too late. You have to have made the decision in advance and built your life up in that way so that you never come to this place where you're in such a horrible position of compromise. David, it seems, volunteers himself When he says, you know what your servant can do. He's saying to Achish, I will will perform well in battle. All right, now up to this point, I've just basically shared with you all these terrible things that happen to David, happen to David, and can happen to us when we build our lives on discouragement and doubt and fear. What I'm going to read to you in the rest of this chapter, we're going to go real quickly through this final little episode The author is going to leave David, and he's going to give us a glimpse into what's happening with Saul during this time. He's not our main focus. He's not even the main focus of the text. But as we look at this, I'm going to show you two final things that can help you pull out of despair, and it can help you pull out of discouragement, and it can help you pull out of fear. But remember that warning I gave you about some weird stuff that we're about to read? It's about to get even weirder in this moment, okay? So let's check it out. Verse 3, now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, okay? So we have this little note before this next episode. The first thing that's told is that Samuel had died and was buried in Ramah. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself, Didn't we already read this? Didn't we already read that Samuel had died? Didn't we already read that he was buried in Ramah? Yes, we've already read it. He died a long time ago. He's been buried in Ramah for a while. But the author is going to, it tells us now about Samuel for two reasons. Number one, Saul is going to ask to hear God's voice. And Samuel's not around, amongst others. And he won't hear God's voice. But the second 
and more important reason is because Saul is going to ask for a medium to call up dead Samuel from the dead, and Samuel is going to show up. Right? I told you this is going to be weird. And uh, so you need, the author is trying to let us know Samuel's already dead at this point. All right, so let's see what happens. Well, first of all, we see there in verse 3 that Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The mediums, uh, that word means mumblers. Uh, the raw Hebrew word means bottle, water skin, or ventriloquist. In other words, these were people who were offering their bodies as a means to communicate on behalf of something. Now, I don't think they were actually communicating on behalf of the dead. I think they were communicating on behalf of the demonic realm. Uh, But that's what they were, mumblers or mediums. Necromancers were spiritists who conjured up the spirits. Or again, that's what they advertised themselves to be. I think all they were doing was dabbling in witchcraft, sorcery, and the demonic realm. Saul had already at this point removed them from Israel, uh, but he's going to request one in this story. So let's read on in verse 4. It says, The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul tries to hear God's voice. Actually, when you cross-reference this with a passage in 1 Chronicles, what you learn is that he really didn't inquire of the Lord, but this was all just for show. He tried prophets. He tried the Urim and Thummim. Uh, he even gave dreams a shot, but he could not hear the word of the Lord. He could not hear God speak and direct his life. And so, you know, he asked around and he asked his servants, hey, bring me a woman who's a medium. I, I, I'm gonna, what he's going to do is call for Samuel who's dead at this time. And so he asked, is there a medium? And so his servants reply and they say, you know, basically, even though you cast them out of the land, there is one in the town of Endor. Now, some of you might be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I know Endor. I I don't know a lot of Bible cities, but I'm pretty sure I know Endor. I can't quite place it. What you're probably thinking of is the forest moon where the Ewoks live in Star Wars, (laughs) that Endor. (laughs) This is the Bible indoor that we're dealing with. Did that happen to some of you? You're like, I know my biblical geography pretty good. I've heard of indoor. Nope, that's the Ewoks. All right, so he asks around and they say, yeah, there's this medium, there's this witch. So, verse 8, Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, 
No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. This is how twisted his walk with God had become. He's actually swearing by the name of the Lord to a witch, telling her, you will not be struck for this thing. For some reason, that satisfied the woman. So in verse 11, the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. But when the woman, verse 12, saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Something interesting happens here in this moment. She calls up Samuel. And I think the reason that she cries with a loud voice is because this is not what normally would happen for her. I don't know if she was simply a deceiver, a charlatan who would feign that she was speaking with the dead, or if she was used to some other demon that she had interacted with in the past, but this is different. She sees Samuel and it's like she's surprised, like what? It actually worked, you know, kind of thing. And she calls out and she realized, you're Saul, you're Saul. She, she comes to an understanding And the king said to her, verse 13, do not be afraid. What do you see? He couldn't see Samuel, but she could. And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? What does he look like? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Classic Samuel. You know, he's just like, man, I was having a good time. I thought when I died, I'd retired from having to deal with you. What what are you doing disturbing me by bringing me up? You see, at this point, uh, they were not, people who died in the faith were not going up to the Lord. They were going down to Sheol. That's the biblical terminology, at least, for the directions where they would go. And so he says, you've brought me up. And Saul answered, verse 15, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also, uh, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel comes and he predicts, tomorrow you're going to die. You're going to lose a battle against the Philistines. You're going to die. And what an ominous phrase, you and your sons tomorrow will be with me. Now there's a chance that when Samuel says that, he's not making a comment about Saul's eternal destiny. Because in the Old Testament era, before Christ ascended and led, and, 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 and led the captives and set them free into eternity with him, before that time, it appears 
that the way that death occurred is that there was a place called Abraham's bosom, a, a place called Sheol, and that there was a place where those who were reserved for judgment would be held, and those who were reserved for everlasting life would be held. And we know, of course, which category Samuel was in. And so it's possible that when he says, with me, he's just referring to Sheol, but that Saul could still be in the judgment compartment. Personally, though, if I, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I believe that Saul had a legitimate relationship with God. And that by his grace, he made it into God's eternal home by the, by the hair on his chinny chin chin, you know, kind of thing. Part of the reason I believe that is because of all of the stuff that came before in his life when he was walking with the Lord, the Spirit of God using his life in some powerful ways. But also, he says right here in verse 19, Samuel said, you and your sons will be, be with me. And Jonathan would die in this battle, and Jonathan was clearly a righteous man. Then Saul, verse 20, fell at once full length on the ground filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he'd eaten nothing all day and night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat, but his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. I love the way the Bible tells these stories of people making a quick meal for someone. You know, like, I've got some food. I've got a fatted calf. Let me go kill it, skin it, drain it, you know, cut up the meat, carve it, cook it, get some bread, bake it, and then we'll have a meal together. You know, it's like, us Americans, we're not patient enough for that, you know. But he just sat there and waited hours, I'm sure, for this Final and last meal. All right. Here's how I just want to leave you today. What would the readers of this passage perceive and read as they saw these accounts? I think one truth that they would have walked away with is that God, though he was finished speaking with Saul, he was not finished speaking with David. And really, in a sense, you could say that he wasn't finished speaking with Saul because even Samuel came and delivered a word for this man. This is an abnormal thing that God does. But the readers would have seen that Saul's heart was so hard that God was now silent with him. But as the story continues, what they would have discovered is, but even though David was so faithless in this moment, God is going to speak to him again. You see, Paul said to Timothy that when we are faithless, God is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, even when you and I falter, the Lord is steady, the Lord is constant, the Lord is strong. And I think that would have been one of the things that they would have seen from this, is that even in our discouragement, and in our fear, and in our doubts, when we act out upon those things, the Lord is more faithful than we are. 
And he's still speaking, he's still working, he still has a plan for David's life. So I think they would have been encouraged with that. But I think on the other hand, there also would have been this sense, as they read these things and thought about their national history, they would have been thinking about the entirety of 1 Samuel, because the whole book of 1 Samuel records the transition in Israel from a theocracy to a monarchy, from God's direct leadership to God leading and directing through kings. And Saul was king number one, and David was king number two. And maybe an ancient Israelite would have read this story and said to themselves, man, our first two kings kind of whiffed. They weren't always all that great. They didn't always do all that well. And I think that that might be a word that helps us with our discouragement and doubt and fear today. Because so often where our discouragement and doubt and fear comes from is by looking at ourselves or looking at others. Maybe even the leaders that God has placed in our lives. But there is only one king who is not a failure in any way, only one leader who has never let anyone down, and that's Jesus Christ. And so maybe in this story, we're seeing a hint, a foreshadowing of how to get out of discouragement and despair and doubt. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look unto him, because when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself.